This is an ABC podcast. The court notes that the military operation being conducted by Israel following the attack of 7 October 2023 has resulted in a large number of deaths and injuries, as well as massive destruction of homes, the forcible displacement of the vast majority of the population, and extensive damage to civilian infrastructure. Justice Joan Donoghue, President of the International Court of Justice, delivering the court's preliminary orders in the genocide case brought by South Africa against Israel over its military actions in Gaza. The court has confirmed that it will hear the full case. Hello, Damien Carrick with you. Last week on The Law Report, we looked at the legal arguments put by both sides. We're now going to analyse the provisional measures of the court which have just been handed down and what impact they might or might not have. I'm joined by Juliet McIntyre, lecturer at the University of South Australia and a specialist in international courts. Juliet McIntyre, before we talk about those emergency orders, on what grounds did the ICJ decide that it would hear the full case at some point in the future? What we're looking at here is a case where South Africa has obviously alleged the commission of genocidal acts against Israel or incitement by Israel to genocide or a failure to prevent genocide. So there's three claims that have been made. And what the court has said is at this stage, it considers that those claims, some of those claims at least, are plausible and that there's a plausible risk of harm to the rights claimed by South Africa if they don't put in place some emergency measures to make the situation on the ground more stable. So it's come to no determination about the merits of the case, but simply that there is a plausible risk. Correct. So the standard for what's called a provisional measures order, which is what this is, is very low. The evidentiary bar is very low and the decisions are made very quickly within a matter of a few weeks. So even though the court has heard some evidence and some arguments from both sides, the parties haven't had the opportunity to present their full case. So the court has said, look, we consider that this is plausible. So it's not just completely false. It's not completely made up. But at this stage, there's been no final determination on the merits as to whether Israel has or has not committed or incited genocide. What conclusions did the court make about whether or not Palestinians in the Gaza Strip form a protected group within the meaning of the convention? This is actually one of the more important findings from this particular decision in that they did say explicitly that Palestinians form a protected group under the convention. And so that's an important recognition of the existence and rights of the Palestinian people as a whole and their right to be protected from acts of genocide and other uh, related prohibited acts. So that alone is a very significant finding. What did the court say about whether or not there is a plausible risk that the Genocide Convention is being breached? Look, what the court said is that at least some of the claims made by South Africa for which it's seeking protection are plausible. So, as I mentioned at the start, we've got essentially three separate claims, the commission of genocide, incitement to genocide, or the failure to prevent genocide. The court didn't specify which of those it considered to be plausible. It didn't pass out the requirements for each of those. It looked at the question of intention, which of course is necessary to establish the commission of genocide. And it seemed to indicate that it thought that was plausible as well, but it didn't go any further than that at this stage. So South Africa had sought from the International Court of Justice a provisional order that there be a ceasefire. 
the ICJ did not make that order. Why? Well, there's two potential reasons. The first is to do with the court's jurisdiction, which, of course, covers, you know, the power of the court here. They can only make a decision based in the Genocide Convention. And here, unlike in the Ukraine-Russia case, Israel hasn't premised any of its acts on the Genocide Convention, whereas Russia said explicitly when it invaded Ukraine, we're doing this because we believe that there's a genocide taking place on Ukrainian territory. Whereas here, South Africa has alleged the commission of a genocide, but Israel hasn't brought up the Genocide Convention at all. It's got nothing to do with it. So there's a potential limited scope of jurisdiction here. But the other issue potentially is that there's only one party to the military conflict before the court at the moment, and that's Israel. Hamas, of course, is not a state. Hamas cannot be before the court. And so the court isn't going to be particularly keen on ordering a ceasefire that will only impose obligations on one party to that conflict. What did the court have to say about the attack by Hamas on October the 7th and the fate of the hostages? The court actually opened its order with a description of what occurred on October the 7th and their statement about what an atrocity this was, essentially. So they recognised that the context for Israel's actions subsequently stems from this moment. And they also, and this is particularly fascinating, at the end of the order, made a call to Hamas to release the hostages unconditionally. Now, as I just said, they don't have any power over Hamas. They can't compel Hamas to do this. But regardless, they felt the need to at least make this moral call to Hamas to both abide by international humanitarian law and to unconditionally release the hostages. And what did the court say about the military operation being conducted by Israel? They didn't say a lot, really, because they can't rule on the legality of the military in act under international humanitarian law or under the law of self-defence or any of those things, because those aren't within the court's jurisdiction in this particular case. So they didn't say a lot about the military action in general, but they did mention the military in its final orders. Let's now focus on some of the six emergency measures that it did order. The first two measures centred on an obligation not to commit certain acts. What are those acts that it asked Israel not to engage in? So it has asked Israel not to engage in killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. That is, of course, the Palestinian people. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, either in whole or in part, or imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. So those are the acts that taken together constitute genocide. And Israel says it's fighting a war of self-defence against an opponent committed to its destruction and the Jewish people. Israel says at all time it's acting in compliance with international humanitarian law and denies carrying out any such acts. What does this emergency measure mean for Israel's current conduct in the conflict? It's a call to Israel to uphold all of its already pre-existing obligations under the Genocide Convention. So to the extent that Israel asserts that it is already doing this, then in a way the measure doesn't demand anything of Israel. But of course, it's also a call to those in power in Israel to ensure that these acts are not taking place. There's also an emergency order relating to humanitarian assistance. What is that measure and what is the requirement placed on Israel by that measure? 
The order is that Israel needs to take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance into Gaza. So this order, which was almost unanimous, there was only one judge who voted against it, and that was Judge Sebutinde. This order is designed to make sure that Israel is not in any way hindering aid getting into Gaza. So making sure that the crossings are open, making sure that that can flow as freely as possible. It's it's interesting that they emphasise the need for not only immediate but also effective measures. So making sure that they are not just on paper saying, yep, aid can get into Gaza, but actually doing things to, to make sure that innocent people aren't suffering the consequences of the military action. So what does this mean for the current conduct, for Israel's current conduct in the conflict? I don't think we know at this stage. It's on my reading of this order and the way that the order is crafted in general, it has very much a humanitarian focus. So it's looking at protecting the innocent Palestinian people and making sure that, you know, the conditions on the ground in Gaza don't get to the point where they're incompatible with with life. So What it really means for Israel is making sure that their military is not committing any of the acts that are listed in the Genocide Convention, making sure that they are complying with their obligations to let humanitarian aid in, and really just, I think, not being cavalier, if you will, about these things, making sure that actually aid is getting in. Now, Emergency Order 6 says the State of Israel shall submit a report to the court on all measures taken to give effect to this order, the other emergency orders, within one month from the date of this order, what kind of information would that report contain? Yeah, well, look, in a way we don't know because these reports are a little bit of a mystery. The um, ICJ has ordered reporting in a few cases at this point, including the Myanmar case, but the reports are never made public. There's a committee of judges who oversees them and uh, it's essentially a way of the court making sure that the state is implementing its orders appropriately. But I imagine it will include evidence, uh, basically, of what Israel has done since the date of the order to make sure that it is meeting its obligations under the Genocide Convention. Does this suggest that the court will have some kind of ongoing role in monitoring events on the ground? Yes, it does. So, yeah, this committee of judges whose responsibility it is to oversee provisional measures, they will look at these reports and continually look at the question of compliance. Because, of course, these orders are binding and it may have flow-on effects down the track. It won't make any difference to the court's actual orders on the question of, you know, is there genocide or is there not? It's not going to influence that decision. But of course, uh, defying a binding court order can have potential effects, for example, the payment of, you know, compensation or so on and so forth. But that will come down the track. Juliet McIntyre, what are the implications of these provisional orders made by the ICJ on third countries such as Australia, who are also parties to the convention? It's interesting here because normally the court's orders are just binding on the two state parties and don't have a huge amount of flow on effects. But here it's quite different because the court has said that there is a plausible risk of genocide occurring in Gaza. That puts third party states like Australia on alert that this is a real possibility here. And then Australia has obligations under the convention to prevent genocide. So it basically says to third party states, you need to act in such a way as to ensure the prevention of any genocide that might be occurring in Gaza. 
And it becomes impossible for Australia, for example, to suggest that there is definitely not a genocide occurring. We, at this point, we don't know. All we know is that it's plausible. But you can't, you can't say that it's completely implausible at this point either. Following allegations that a number of workers at the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNWA, took part in the October 7 attacks, a number of countries, including Australia have announced that they will be temporarily halting their funding for UNWA. How do the emergency measures of the ICJ to provide humanitarian assistance sit beside the decision to halt humanitarian aid in light of concerns about UNWA? So this is problematic. So, I mean, of course, beginning with the initial allegations, those are very serious and require a full investigation. But at this point, we believe that the UN is conducting a full investigation. So for countries like Australia to cut off aid, you know, we're one of the top donors. The US, of course, is is one of the top donors. Doing this essentially cripples the agency and prevents it from being able to offer aid on the ground. So on one reading, this is almost directly in contradiction to the court's order to enable aid to get into Gaza. It's, It's making that significantly more difficult because this is the key agency on the ground. And we've had, for example, the UN Special Rapporteur on Food suggest today that this will lead to famine in Gaza. So it puts Australia at risk of breaching its own obligation to prevent genocide under the convention. So a temporary freezing of funds by a country like Australia could be a violation of the emergency order. It could, yes, yeah. I mean, it depends on context, of course, and how long the freeze goes on for and so forth and what effect that freeze has on the ground. But yes, it's absolutely a possibility. And at the United Nations level or at the international level, what are the implications of of the six provisional measures of, of the ICJ? So at the international level, what this will do is suggest to other states that they need to put political pressure on Israel to ensure that it's upholding all of its obligations under the Genocide Convention. So to the extent that Israel has suggested at all that it may not comply with the order, for example, other states will need to step in and apply that political pressure to ensure that Israel is complying. So it it moves, if you will, from the sort of the court realm into the political realm. Here in Australia, Palestinian groups have launched a legal case seeking information about Australian defence export permits to Israel, granted by the the Minister of Defence since the 7th of October. And the Defence Minister has said Israel hasn't sought any weapons from Australia and we haven't provided any. But how do the preliminary measures of the ICJ impact on Australia's engagement with Israel and what legal ramifications might there be? Again, there's um, obviously our obligation to prevent genocide under the convention, and we are on alert now that the court considers this to be a plausible risk. But there's also other effects. It's not permissible under international law to aid or abet in the commission of an internationally wrongful act. So to the extent that a state such as Australia might supply military aid or weapons to Israel, and Israel is then found down the track to have committed genocide, Australia has, in doing so by supplying military aid, potentially aided in the commission of this internationally wrongful act. So this order is a real like red flag, if you will, to other states to act cautiously and make decisions that are based on what the court has said about this being a risk of genocide. 
Juliet McIntyre, lecturer at the University of South Australia and specialist in international courts. Thanks for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. Do follow us on the ABC Listen app or on whatever platform you find the podcast. Ireland has just commenced litigation against the UK in the European Court of Human Rights. The case aims to block new British legislation which stops criminal investigations relating to the troubles in Northern Ireland. London says the law helps build reconciliation. Dublin says it denies the human rights of victims. Daniel Holder is Director of Belfast Human Rights NGO, the Committee on the Administration of Justice, and his organisation campaigned to encourage the Irish government to take this step, to go to court. Daniel Holder, what does the UK government's Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Act do? Well, what the legislation does, first of all, is it closes down all of the existing mechanisms that are currently dealing with conflict-related cases. So cases that are dealing not just with soldiers, but also with paramilitaries and other protagonists in the conflict. All of those things will close down. So it's the inquest system, even civil litigation, not just criminal prosecutions. They'll be closed down at a time when they're actually most delivering for families. The second thing the legislation will do is it introduces a, a broad sort of amnesty that originally was a blanket amnesty, broader actually in scope than the notorious amnesty introduced by General Pinochet and and, and Chile. Now it's a conditional amnesty scheme, but with an incredibly low threshold. The, The objective appears to be to get as many soldiers over the line for an amnesty as possible. So that's the second thing the legislation does. The third thing the legislation does is it introduces a new legacy body to replace mechanisms that had been agreed by the British and Irish government as part of bilateral negotiations during the peace process. And that new legacy body has been significantly criticised by the regional human rights bodies, the Council of Europe and the United Nations for lacking um, requisite independence and other aspects that you'd need to to conduct effective investigations into, into historic cases. So the legislation closes down criminal investigations into those who were killed during the Troubles. As I understand it, about 3,500 people were killed during this period. How many of those killings are still unresolved? There's very significant numbers. I mean, you are talking thousands. It's very difficult to put a figure on it. Because, of course, even in cases where there has been a conviction, of, say, the person who pulled the trigger, there may well be questions still to ask about the the context in which that put place and, and broader culpability of, of other persons. So you are talking about a lot of cases. One of the reasons for that as well is, although most of the killings during the conflict were by paramilitary groups, by the IRA and by the loyalist paramilitary groups, loyalty referring to loyalty to the Crown, there were also quite a lot of killings by the security forces, around 10% of the total were were direct killings. There's also obviously cases where there's been evidence of collusion between members of the security forces and loyalist paramilitary groups in, in particular. In terms of those state killings, killings by soldiers, however, some of those weren't actually investigated at all during the conflict, particularly at the beginning. There were no police investigations. And therefore, you have this body of cases that haven't previously been subjected to proper investigations that require 
reinvestigation. So the picture is quite complex. So the UK government says the rationale for the legislation is twofold. The first is that it puts an end to ongoing, never-ending criminal investigations against veterans. It says that uh, some of these have become vexatious and argue that uh, soldiers have been subjected to, to unfair prosecutions. They are still ongoing. I understand last year a British soldier, David Holden, received a three-year suspended sentence for killing a man at a checkpoint in 1988, shooting him in the back. In late December, a judge in Northern Ireland said uh, Soldier F, the only British soldier charged over the 1972 Bloody Sunday killings of 13 civilians, would stand trial for murder. So there are these, these very historical criminal investigations going into historical events still happening now. And and that, I think, is what the British government says they need to put a stop to. Yeah. I mean, it's extremely alarming in a democracy when a government uh, accuses its own justice system of engaging in a vexatious manner, accuses judges or prosecutors um, or police investigators of, of engaging in a vexatious manner. In reality, None of these cases have been vexatious. When ministers are pressed to name a single case that is vexatious, they're clearly unable to do so. What's interesting is, in relation to that position, is that what's being closed down is not at all limited to criminal investigations that are very much the tiny tip of the iceberg in relation to current legacy investigations due to the existing mechanisms that were put into place on the back of cases that were taken to the European Court of Human Rights. The case you mentioned is the only case where a soldier has been convicted. And indeed, they, as, as you've said, they didn't do a day in jail. And if they had been sentenced to something other than a suspended sentence, the maximum they would have done anyway is two years under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement for Conflict-Related Offences. In reality, the vast majority of legacy investigations in Northern Ireland aren't criminal prosecutions. They're either inquests, which determine the facts around the death, essentially truth trials that don't have civil or criminal liability, or their independent reports by officers such as the independent office of the of the police ombudsman. What's happening is that these investigative mechanisms are increasingly uncovering embarrassing truths. One of the sort of broader issues around this is that the peace process, as you may know, the Northern Ireland peace process, the Good Friday Agreement, and many of the subsequent specific agreements that, that flowed from it, were very much a bilateral affair between both the British and Irish governments. They worked very, very closely together. And that's the context in which Ireland has ultimately felt, well, look, UK government's acted unilaterally here. It's broken a bilateral agreement of, of the peace process. That's been a pattern over a number of years, actually, with various aspects of the peace agreements and the current UK government. Ireland to date hasn't really had a legal remedy for that. But on this occasion, because this engages legal obligations under the European Convention of Human Rights, they have been able to take legal action to try and enforce some of the provisions of the peace agreements. Daniel Holder, in Northern Ireland, who opposes this legislation? Is the opposition across the board? Yes, it pretty much is. Practically everyone opposes it, whether it's victims groups, whether it's all of the political parties in, in Northern Ireland, that includes Sinn Féin, that includes the, the unionist parties, that includes the more centrist parties. So across the political spectrum, every single party in Northern Ireland uh, opposes this, which makes it quite ironic that the, the UK government put reconciliation in the title of the bill because all the people that it's supposed to reconcile are steadfastly opposed to this legislation. All of the political parties in the Republic of Ireland 
are opposed to this, as are all UK opposition parties. What's interesting as well, that former members of the security forces within Northern Ireland are also quite strongly opposed in general to this legislation. They don't want an amnesty. They think it implies widespread wrongdoing, which they would say was certainly not the case. There has been a mobilisation both by sections of the Conservative Party and in Britain and among some military veterans groups in Britain for this legislation. But beyond that, it's almost universally opposed. So it's very much opposed by both communities in Northern Ireland, the uh, Catholics and, and, and the Protestant communities. And in a sense, this has brought them together, ironically. Well, in opposition to this happening, but it still is happening. But yes, it's been universally held in a, on a cross-community basis that this legislation is not, it's not what people want. It closes down investigations into all conflict-related offences under the existing system, well beyond those involving military veterans. So it has, it, it has been universally opposed by victims groups, some of whom want very different things. In post-conflict societies, people look to Northern Ireland as an example, warring communities finding common ground and moving forward. Should letting go of past injustice be part of that process? And I I think of the new review process sounds on its face similar to South Africa's truth and reconciliation process post-apartheid, and which is regarded as a success. Should there be a place for forgiveness and letting go of legal options? That's not what's happening here. That the process, it's being spun sometimes is like a South African process, but when you look at the detail of it, it's it's incredibly different. The South African type process and the issue of reducing jail time, having mechanisms that would lead to significant amounts of truth and information recovery was precisely what was foreseen by the 2014 peace process agreement that has been torn up unilaterally by the UK government. It's also precisely what's being delivered by a number of the existing mechanisms that aren't actually focused at all really on on criminal prosecutions. There's only been a a small handful and and most of them against Republicans and loyalists, not, not security force actors. So the reality is that there were 10 years of negotiations to reach an agreement, in fact, at least 10 years, to reach a peace process agreement, to have a series of mechanisms that would balance all of those considerations you, you've just mentioned. But because an agenda of closing down investigations into the military has come to the fore within the current British government, who are very, very cavalier about their international legal obligations. I mean, for, for example, this new commission will be able to, to issue amnesties for torture. Um, you cannot issue amnesties for torture. That's been established under international law for for some time now. That the agenda of just trying to shut everything down and replace it with a, a body that's much more under ministerial control that can that can produce a more palatable narrative for, for the UK government has has taken over. It's not one that has the kind of buy-in that you would need from sectors of society to be successful. Daniel Holder, final question. What are the next steps now? Uh, Ireland has commenced this litigation in the European Court of Human Rights. What are the next steps from here on in? Well, there is also domestic litigation before the UK courts, and the lower level of that court may well pronounce in the incoming weeks. We would hope to hear something from, from Strasbourg 
within months in terms of progress on the interstate case. But it could take some considerable time. And it's also foreseeable that if there's a UK general election, which appears to be scheduled for the autumn, certainly has to be sometime in the, the next year, there could be a change of British government that takes a very different view and may well negotiate with Dublin a different settlement. And if that satisfies um, the Irish government and the legislation has changed, that may have implications for, for this case going forward. Daniel Holder, Director of Belfast Human Rights NGO, the Committee on the Administration of Justice. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. That's all we have time for on The Law Report. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to sound engineer Matthew Crawford. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.